This is Mike Campbell. You're listening to a special Boxing Day edition of Money Talks. Money Talks brought to you by Solera Club. In case you don't know, Solera Club is what's called a royalty-based investment, meaning you as the investor get paid first. There are no fees attached. And uh, you can find more information in the tech industry here on soleraclub.com. Now, I say special because we're going to be broadcasting for the first time. It's live. It's the Guide to Improving Your Investment Record today, featuring Tyler Bullhorn of StockScores.com. We're on stage together talking about the essentials, what to buy, when to buy, and when to sell at the Invest for Success conference. Now, I think you're going to get great value from this as we head into the new year. But first off, who would have guessed it? Lineups on Boxing Day? Internet shopping galore? Can you hazard a guess as to why the big activity here today on Boxing Day? Because if you can, then you understand arguably the essential point of evaluating government financial policies. But unfortunately, we're surrounded by people who clearly can't make the straightforward connection. And some of them are running governments. I think most of us understand that the reason we go shopping on Boxing Day is that virtually everything is on sale. And if those same items were not on sale, most of us would have stayed home and done something else. As Stephen Levitt, author of the big bestseller Freakonomics, said, economics is the study of incentives, and changing prices changes the incentive, which in turn changes our behavior. Hence, they put it on sale, we rush downtown. This is the essence, though, of understanding the impact of regulatory and tax policies. It's the key to understanding why the world isn't as simple as saying that if we change one variable, nothing else changes. One important a- uh, application of this is the impact of incentives on raising or lowering taxes. We get told relentlessly that raising taxes will produce more government revenue. Yet we've got a ton of examples where the opposite happened. Why? Because people changed their behavior. They did more tax planning or worked less or moved, moved jurisdictions when the tax rate rose. And to continue to ignore this sort of straightforward everyday fact is akin to saying you don't understand why people Go box or go shopping on Boxing Day. In short, it's clueless. You see, in assessing any tax and regulatory policy, first and foremost is to assess what incentives are being created. All Boxing Day reminds us is that people regularly change their behavior when prices or costs change, which brings me to the challenge we have today. And it's also a warning by Nobel Prize winner John Prescott, who stated in response to calls to raise taxes on the rich in business, in quotes, the idea that you can increase taxes and stimulate the economy is pretty damn stupid, end of quote. Now, his views were echoed by five other Nobel Prize winners who were asked to review the various political parties' economic platforms. But the bottom line is, you're creating a disincentive when you raise taxes. And unfortunately, many commentators in the media, politicians, dismiss this, despite the overwhelming research. Many commentators and leaders prefer to declare that tax reductions are a sop for the rich, a favor for big business, or part of a vast right-wing agenda. Well, these statements seem to be easier for many people to accept, rather than acknowledging there are consequences when you raise taxes, for example. It's uncomfortable for those who built political careers on the rhetoric of wealth redistribution to acknowledge that economic reality has encouraged even things uh, groups like the Communist Party of China, uh, British, Britain's Labour Party under Tony Blair, uh, Germans' left-wing parties, Ireland's trade union leaders, all to spearhead drives to lower corporate and individual tax rates in their respective countries. Even in Canada, you've had left-wing leaders acknowledge the role that lower prices can play, or lower taxes can play in attracting investment capital and spurring on the economy. 
I mean, gosh, you've got to remember, CAW's former head, Buzz Hargrove, lobbied relentlessly for special brakes for the big three automakers. In Saskatchewan, under the NDP's Lauren Culvert, they lowered taxes for the oil and gas sector to increase activity. BC, it was the NDP who originated tax breaks for the film industry. Now, I'm purposely giving examples of left-wing governments because too often advocates of big government dismiss the importance of having a competitive tax and regulatory regime. They call it some sort of right-wing conspiracy. I mean, it's not. It's common sense. And we're showing it right now on Boxing Day. At some point, you think it would be embarrassing to perpetuate the myth that lowering taxes can fit into the, some sort of overly simplistic paradigm of left versus right. I mean, so-called left, center, and right-wing governments from around the world have acknowledged the reality that, as Canadian Nobel Prize winner Robert Mundell said, taxes are the arterial sclerosis of the economy. I mean, what happens to left-wing governments, by the way, or left-wing politicians when they form government? And it doesn't matter that at some point they have to appreciate that the rhetoric of wealth redistribution has its limit. In fact, they have to encourage capital investment, job creation, and job growth. I mean, there's no shortage of jurisdictions that found that wealth redistribution is a very hollow policy when there's nothing to redistribute. I mean, Alberta's about to get a monster lesson in that regard. As the NDP's finance minister said this week, that the slow economy could put various uh, election promises on hold. What Alberta's about to learn is a lesson that many left-wing governments before them already have, and that is the failure to understand the difference between tax as a mechanism for income redistribution and tax policy as an incentive to attract capital is very dangerous to your economic health. I mean, I've been asking for years, who actually benefits from weak economic growth? It's not the poor. It's not charities through donations. It's not government services or the unemployed. But still, we have a huge number of Canadians who support policies of high taxes and more costly regulation that are huge obstacles to economic growth. I mean, how's reduced economic growth working out in Alberta? Now, I've been moaning about this for years. I get it, because it's common sense, though. I mean, if you want more of an action, in this case, of an economy that's growing, well, you've got to attract capital. That means providing an incentive through the tax and regulatory policy. But sadly... That essential bit of common sense is ignored. All Boxing Day shopping does is remind us how ridiculous that is. A reminder that Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. Hey, back right after the break with the guide to improving your investment record. Tyler Bullhorn, stockcores.com, recorded live at the Invest for Success conference. And a reminder, anytime you can review everything you hear on Money Talks by going to moneytalks.net. Back after the break. So let me tell you what we're doing here uh, this evening. Uh, I was thinking it's never popular. I, I find the older I get, the blunter I become. Like, I don't have many friends and I don't care to have any more. And I don't really like the people I know. So, like, I've got nothing. To, that's the biggest difference I find between myself and other people I happen to know personally in the media. They actually care if somebody likes them and I don't. I, and that's really sincere. <laughs> so let me tell you what we're doing here in that line. I thought it was important to do this to protect you from yourselves. That one of the things that uh, I've been more and more on about in the last few years is just strictly how do you become more successful in investing? That we've got lots of stats that tell us that people lose money in bull markets, they lose money in bear markets, they make mistakes, and I say that because I have real confidence that if every one of you could write down the number one mistake you've made investing 
and we pooled them all together, hundreds of people here, my bet is I've probably made them all myself. And what I find spectacular in my own skill set is there's a guy named Dan Millman, who some of you may have known from writing a book called The Peaceful Warrior. And it was a big hit, and he wrote several other books. And I saw Dan speak once, and I just loved one of the things he said. He said, there are only seven great lessons to learn in the universe. The key is, how often do you have to learn them? And I've always been amazed. Uh, I, I find I don't make the same mistakes investing, or at least certainly not the same frequency, and I don't make them in the same sort of time frame any longer. But I am still amazed how this thing, this combination of money and emotions, and I know, you know, I get, and the stuff I've done, in, uh, you know, in the opportunities I've had broadcasting and, and uh, analytical circles and things, I get to talk with some of the really terrific people in this business. And it's, and it's amazing to me that they'll tell the same stories, the challenge that they'll have. And so I want you to think about what you're going to hear tonight within that context. My goal is really straightforward, that you leave here a better investor than you walked in here. That maybe we can save you some from fundamental mistakes. Uh, Tyler and I have talked in anticipation of the kind of things that people have challenges with. And as I said, the straightforward questions on can you give me an indication what to buy, when to buy, and especially when to sell it? How do I manage my risk? So our goal here this evening is to answer those questions. Let's get to the task at hand here, becoming better at what uh, we do with our money. I'm going to start with a couple of quick questions, Tyler, and All right. we're going to get to it. I, I just think people who don't know you here, I know that you started coming out of the University of Calgary. Yep. And uh, you borrowed money against a Visa card yep. to invest. I'm not so sure I'm recommending that as nope. an approach for your uh, younger people here today. Tell us a little bit about how you got going. Well, you know, I was a student at the University of Calgary in the Faculty of Management business program. I wanted to, I actually wanted to be an accountant. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going into finance instead. And I thought, well, I should probably That's learn something about... the first time accountants have ever had a round of applause here. Yeah. I'm jealous of accountants because they always say that uh, economists were put on this earth to make accountants look like they had a personality. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, I felt like I should learn something about the stock market. And from the moment I started looking into the stock market, I just was hooked on it. I mean, it was uh, something that I just found quite fascinating. And in the early days, uh, this was kind of just as the internet was becoming popular, um, there wasn't stock charts and, and analysis like you see nowadays. It was, you know, people on Wall Street and Bay Street had a real advantage over us. And I would actually draw out stock charts by hand going through months and months of newspapers and, you know, writing down this is when to buy, when to sell. Um, I, I bought my first stock with $3,000 that I borrowed from uh, Visa. Well, half of it from Visa anyway. And uh, that first trade was a loser. And I, in, in buying that stock, I actually applied everything that I was learning in business school. And it didn't dawn on me that maybe the professors at business school were there for a reason, not because they were good traders, but for something else. And so I decided that, that the traditional approach to the market um, just wasn't going to work for me. And I, I wanted to read all these books about it, but there was really none. There was maybe one or two books about stock trading. There was a number of books about trading the futures market, um, but they weren't so good for stocks. I, I lived in Calgary. I would hang out at the Alberta Stock Exchange 
uh, because they had real-time quotes there. I mean, so many different stories about the, the early days, but you know, it was really grew out of a passion, something that I loved to do. And eventually, I became pretty good at picking stocks. I paid my way through university. Um, but you know, I was also pumping gas, going to school in, in the morning, pumping gas in the afternoon, studying the markets when I got home. I was a pretty busy guy. And eventually, I started to figure it out. Let me just, you know, the markets have changed since that time, obviously. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, maybe you shouldn't be in a buy and hold kind of thing any longer or, or you know, that kind of adjustment. Look at the volumes, the changes there. Yeah. What, what, what kind of stuff are you seeing as major changes since you started? Well, there's a lot of things that are different and there's some simple things that are very much the same. The market is still governed by fear and greed. It's not about business, it's about fear and greed and about human psychology. And that's the same. What's different, however, is the spread of information is so much quicker. Uh, the market reacts instantaneously to new information, almost. And the other thing that's really become important in the last few years is that exchange-traded funds now rule the stock market. You know, they, and I'll talk about exchange-traded funds a little later, but they were set up originally to be like a mutual fund that traded like a stock. And it's now a case of the tail wagging the dog. And, um, and, and these ETFs really govern the market. The biggest thing, however, is that buy and hold has not worked because volatility has increased so much. Is it really doesn't take a big change in your returns to make a magnificent change in sort of the, the amount of money you end up with? Yeah, and that's the amazing thing. And we talked a little bit about this on the radio on the weekend. But if you'd had um, $50,000 portfolio, let's start with that as a baseline. And the difference between earning 6% and 8%, which is only a two-point difference, on your retirement in 25 years is $127,000. In 10 years, it's $18,000. Now, the stock market historically has returned 7%. If you go back from the start of the stock market, that's the historical average return for stocks. And it's actually better than any other asset class. But in the last 12 years, the stock market's been pretty bad. So if you can take a little bit of a trader mentality to the market so that you can do a little bit better than your neighbor, the, the effect on your portfolio is profound. Well, I think the other thing, just trying to make the point here, is that it doesn't take you know, a huge change. I mean, my experience, again, with people is that they keep on thinking about the home run. Hence, they don't sell you know, at anywhere rear, they don't have any idea when to sell because they're just filled with emotion, you know, on that. Now, I mean, I would certainly put my hand up. I mean, let me just ask you, have you ever bought a stock, you know, watched it go up, uh, what, what you would consider a decent return? I don't care if it's 10, 20, 30 percent, and then ended up selling it for a loss. Can you put your arm up besides me? Sure. And what we're going to talk about is what makes those decisions? How can, you, how can we help you with that decision? When would be a turning point that you could do? But the point is, you don't need to be hitting home runs here. You need to be just doing it somewhat better, and it really will have a profound impact. So Tyler, why don't you start us off? Tell us, uh, sure. tell us about what you know, we should know. No one really cares more about your money than you. You really need to take control of it. Even if you have someone managing your money for you, and there's nothing wrong with that, you need to understand what's going on because at the end of the day, the financial motivation for you to do well rests solely with you and we shouldn't forget about that. So what I'm going to start with tonight is I'm going to teach you how to read a stock chart. But before I do that, I want to explain why I think for most people in this room, 
Reading a stock chart will get you a much better result than any other method, and here's why. The stock market moves, price changes, and that's really what we're all concerned about as investors, price changes because of information. Information is the absolute key. Emotion is a factor. How we judge information is largely dependent upon our mood. But at the end of the day, information is critical. So what do I mean by that? Well, if uh, Bombardier announces earnings and the earnings are better than expected, that kind of information will cause Bombardier's stock to go up. If London Mining has a positive drill result on an exploration project, that'll make their stock go up. If there is the threat of default on Spanish debt, that'll make the whole market go down. And so we have information that is specific to stocks, individual stocks, and then we also have information that's specific to the overall market, so macro and micro in, in some ways. Here's the problem. Most people are using publicly available information to make decisions. And if you do that, your success in the market will be random. A book written in 1973 by Burton Malkiel, who's a, you know, a pretty famous financial theorist, was a, a book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And in that book, he makes a very good argument why, because the market is efficient, using publicly available information has no value. So what do I mean by publicly available information? Well, let's go back to Bombardier announcing better than expected earnings. If you know that before the earnings are announced, you have private information, inside information. The day it hits the newspaper and the news wires and it's being talked about on TV, now it is public information. The moment it becomes public information, the market adjusts for that information. In this case, we would expect Bombardier stock to go up. And the second that that happens, that information is now priced in and is therefore useless. If we use another example of a pharmaceutical company that finds a cure for lupus, I'm just pulling these ideas out of my head here. So the company finds a cure for lupus, they announce it, their stock goes from $5 to $10. Buying it at $10 is no good to you anymore because the information was now priced in. Most people are reading news releases, they're watching TV, they're reading the newspaper, but when you use that information just as it is on the surface, it's useless. Now you might get lucky, you might buy that Bombardier stock because the earnings were strong and the luck would be that two weeks later they announce a big contract to sell trains to Germany. Okay, that's luck because you bought the stock ahead of some private information being released and therefore becoming public and you got lucky and the stock goes up because of it. It didn't go up because the earnings came out because that was already priced in. So are we all good on that idea? So in this way, if you're going to beat the market, if you're going to do better than the averages, you need a method for finding information before it is public. There's two ways to do that. We'll get to those two right after the break. You're listening to Money Talks on the Chorus Radio Network.